Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And we have another interview for you coming up with two very special guests after a few quick updates. It's crazy as we record this, we're already through halfway through the year in 2023 and already 2023 is looking to be another banner year here at Project Purple. Um, we're already over where we were last year at this point in 2022, which was our best year yet. So quickly, thank you to everyone so far who's made it so, so special. Many of our fall marathons, it's crazy to say we're like just into the summer. Now we're already talking about fall, but many of our fall marathon teams are full in New York and Chicago. We still have some spots left in Berlin. We also have just recently added the South Norwalk half marathon, 5k Chicago half marathon in the fall. We have spots left in the Detroit marathon and half marathon and 5k in Detroit. Um, and twin cities, I believe we have one spot left in our marathon team. So if you're interested in running in any of those races or your own race uh, in your own area, feel free to check out our website. We also have many virtual events coming up. Uh, we have our Work Harder event coming up in August and also in September here in Connecticut, the new added Over the Edge in Hartford Urban Repelling Series, uh, which will be happening uh, September 15th and 16th in Hartford, Connecticut. To learn more about all these great events and uh, anything else that we're doing here at Project Purple, visit our website at projectpurple.org and make sure to follow us wherever you are on social to stay all up to date with all things Project Purple. Without further ado, let's meet our special guest today coming to us all the way from Houston, Texas, pancreatic cancer survivor, Pam Zane and her daughter, Stacy Greer. Welcome to the Project Purple podcast. Hi. Thanks for having us. <laughs> well, the pleasure's all mine. I know we were uh, getting to know each other here before we hit record. And as I said, we always love bringing survivors and also their their caregivers. I, I think, you know, we often talk, uh, we talk a lot about survivors, um, which is important. But there's one key component, and, and this is why I love bringing on like caregivers and family members, because... I have never in six and a half years of doing this podcast, I've ever had a survivor on and they say, hey, you know what? I did it all by myself. <laughs> yeah, no way. No way, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think, you know, we, we've done multiple episodes where uh, we've had, you know, children, best friends. Um, I even had one where um, it was a lady who was battling and she brought on her three sisters, um, you know, and so, and we've always, you know, had spouse ones as well. And I, I just think it's just so critical because I think that's like, there's a, there's a couple of tenants that I talk about or that I hear about. And then I talk about on podcasts, especially with survivors and do, doing it with the help of family and friends and not being able, like there, there's a lot of people that think like, hey, I, I can do this by myself. This is not something that you can do by yourself. Um, so I love when we get, you know, multiple guests on a podcast because that just reinforces that, that you know, people have to accept help. You have, you can't do Absolutely. it alone. This is, yeah. this is not something that you can do alone. So with that, I'm going to hand the mic over here to Pam and Stacy. And um, as we were talking here before we hit record, this first part of this podcast segment is always the guest opportunity to kind of share their background uh, with our audience, because I'm sure a lot of our audience, I'm sure you're going to share this with family and friends, and, and they're going to know your backstory a bit, or maybe they'll, they'll learn some more about you guys. Uh, but 
majority of our audience probably doesn't know who Pam and, and Stacy are. So this is really your opportunity to kind of share with them your background, what brought you here to the podcast today, your journey with pancreatic cancer. With that, the microphone is yours and uh, you can stay as high level as you want, Pam and Stacy, or you can get as much in the weeds as you want. Well, I'll kind of start with what I was saying before we were on the, before you were recording that I was diagnosed with stage 2B, 2B, whatever, in September of 2016. It was Labor Day weekend. Um, I I was saying that we were devastated. My husband is a surgeon. I have two beautiful daughters. I had just had my second grandchild six weeks prior to my diagnosis. And we were devastated. We thought, even my husband, who's a surgeon and going through medical school residency uh, from from his time period of that, um, and we were both 56 at the time, and we thought anyone we knew who had pancreatic cancer, they died. We just thought it's, you die. Um, yeah, it's a death sentence. And I was worried about uh, it being a suffering death sentence because I'd seen that. and. Um, I was already thinking I'm going to go to another state where they allow you to be put to sleep if that's what it came to. I didn't want to suffer. Um, but what really turned things around for me was my first visit to MD Anderson. And I remember walking through the door and thinking, I can't believe I'm here at MD Anderson. Um, you know, that was kind of the first thing, but once I talked to my oncologist who had been recommended to me, I had uh, two friends who said, you have to see this doctor. He, he's the one. And, and luckily I, we're in Houston. So, yeah. you know, we're where MD Anderson is. You know, everybody knows MD Anderson, but we had heard about this doctor, Dr. Robert Wolf, which there's, you know, now I would say anyone on his team is great. Um, but that's who two of my close friends recommended. And so it wasn't even that easy to get in with him. I think he's very busy, um, unfortunately, but um, I got in with him and he just was very reassuring. He, he said to me, I'm not just going for a long time. I'm going for a cure. Yeah. He said, I'm not going to treat you. I, or he said, I aim to cure you, not to just treat you. Of course, in months that have followed, you know, I have heard there's really no cure. But I, even with that said, I think you can, and this is what I tell people all the time, that it is not a death sentence. Uh, I 100%, that's how I think now. It is not a death sentence. I mean, I'm already almost seven years. Almost seven years. Almost seven years and I've heard of other longer stories. I have had a lot of bumps in the road. I certainly have, but, um, I'm still here and well, and it's easy, you know, having my dad, who's a doctor, knowing people who have had pancreatic cancer before, when we got this diagnosis, you know, we certainly knew the statistics. And I remember at the time she was diagnosed, the survival five-year survival rate was like 3%. I think it's gone up since then. Yeah. I think it's gone up to like 12%. So we started saying, okay, it's 3%. Who's to say you're not in that 
why do you have to be in the 97% or not, you know, 96%? Why can't you be in the 3%? And, you know, we were like, okay, let's start thinking that. I really did. You know, people always say to me, oh, you're so positive. You're so, what's the other word? I mean, I'm, I guess positive. I don't know. (laughs) But, um, I'm not always positive. I mean, I have my down times, especially with these bumps in the road, especially the recent one that we can talk about later. But um, no one was positive when we first got the diagnosis. Um, like, even though we we said that eventually, we yeah. still, you know, my dad was like, well, sure, but, you know, this is what it is. And my I'm husband, like, okay. <laughs> my husband was probably the most upset. Um well, I should. Well, we were all. Upset, I were all. But upset. he was the most um, visibly. Well, he was too. He was almost too close to it, realistic and too knowledgeable too, about about it, and he just thought it was too reliant on the statistics. What uh? What you said? He's a surgeon. Where he's, is uh, he? Head, head and neck surgery. Okay, head and neck. But neck. so he. Yeah, but he knows enough, uh, right. you know, and I think the the challenging piece, and we've had doctors on that have actually gone through it. Um, exactly. Yeah. And and I I think maybe sometimes when you're in it, um, you know too much, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. You yeah. know, and and I think doctors, um, you know, head and neck isn't, uh, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful here, but that's not like oncology, right? So oh, you, you so deal with it. To say that, yeah. Yeah, you know, so you deal with it from a different perspective, I guess. But also, though, as I said something before we hit record, right, the system is so big. And it's not as if the system, I know when, and I'm not trying to talk bad about anyone, but like, I, I see this all the time, right? Like doctors, and I'm not, I don't know your husband, so I'm not trying to bash him either. But, you know, the system doesn't teach doctors how to be empathetic, If that makes sense. So, you know, unless they are, uh, you know, if they have empathy or that understanding to your point, you know, he, I think surgeons are very, um, linear in the sense like, Hey, these are the statistics. This is the science. This is what we know. And that's what they go with. But to say like, Hey, and I love that you said this, Stacy, because we say this often and and I'll explain this too. uh, I think even further and why this happens you know, Pam can be part of that 3% at the time, right? There's nothing there, but doctors don't, I, I think it's hard for doctors to shift yeah. that, right? Because yeah, they know, yeah. they know, hey, the, the cancer is on the other side. Correct. So they're, they're, and they're, and it's very linear for them, right? You know, we've mentioned a lot of this recently, I, I think too, and going back to 2016 as well, you know, the advocacy groups, I, and I, I consider ourselves, you know, we're an advocacy group. We take blame for this, um, that we don't talk about what you said, Stacy, is that you don't know. No one knows who's part of it. Now it's 12%. No one knows who's in that 12%. And I've yeah. asked the question, like, how do you get to 12%? Like, where's that number coming from? Are they constantly pooling um you know, survivors, are they following people every year to get to that 12%, which is another question that I have. But again, I think we, we also, the, the advocacy groups always kind of lead with the, the fear and the doom, um, which I, I get, like, I guess in a legislative situation, and I'm not trying to badmouth anyone here, but like, you know, if you know, you know, you know, the majority of cancer research comes from the government. So how do you, put a passionate plea 
in DC. You got to lead with that fear and that, exactly. that doom and gloom, right? Yeah. So we've got to constantly like, and everyone thinks like that's a motivator. And I think for some people it is, but I think it's also, we walk this very fine line where there's people battling this, that if you're the group that's constantly doom and gloom, because that's how we're motivating people to fund more research what are we doing to those people on the other side? We're really messing with people's mental health here. Yeah. So I, I, I've seen that in the last two years, I think through the pandemic, yeah. realizing that. Um, I think everyone knows the reality that they're in, that, it, that it's not a walk in the park uh, by any means. And But though, to Stacy's point, there's no one out there, no doctor or no clinician that can't say, Pam, you're part of that survivor group, or whoever's listening on the other side that's that's battling this is not part of that survivor group. Right. And I think that's what we need to lead with. Yes, we we do need to better. We do need help from Congress. We do need help from pharma. We do need help from philanthropy because it is a hell of a battle. We're we're, yeah. we're really struggling to stay afloat. Um, if you look at the statistics, but right, even if no. you say twelve percent, I mean, there's still the greater Correct. number. Correct. On the other side. Yeah. So I, I love that Stacy brought that up. Um, and I, I think this is an important point to, to, to talk about here for a second. I, I want to back up a little bit here, Pam, and go back to before September 16, um, before getting that diagnosis, what was going on? Like well, what brought you to that table or I'll to that you, office it was visit? Very strange and unusual, I think. Um, and I, this is why I do, I tell people my main symptom was itching, which is, if you look at the symptoms, mm -hmm. that is a symptom and itching and the jaundice. And I was a little bit jaundiced and I had a little bit of stomach issues, you know, maybe a little diarrhea, but not even that was not the thing itching. And then I remember one night it was after I'd eaten fried food, which isn't good for anybody, but in moderation, I believe in everything. And that night, I literally was up all night with terrible upper abdomen pain. Um, and I thought, this is so weird, you know, and um, I thought it was gallbladder. My husband thought gallbladder. Um, wasn't real worried about it. It was kind of a one-time thing, but the itching was really what was driving me crazy. Um, which I later learned why that occurs. And I still, it's hard for me to, I know it has something to do with the bile duct. And, mm -hmm. um, but when I went, I had it for like two weeks, the itching. And thankfully, I always say this, I went to my internal medicine doctor, you know, just kind of my GP. And I told her I was itching. And I always say, thank God she didn't just send me to a dermatologist for some cream, but she must have suspected maybe she did think I looked a little jaundiced. I'm 56 years old. You know, I had had this incident of the pain one night. Um, she sent me instead of, you know, she, she didn't say anything terrible. She didn't really, she scared me a little bit, but not, I don't even think she used the word pancreatic cancer. Um, but she sent me the next day to another doctor. I think he was a gastroenterologist. The next day he did a sonogram. 
uh, Wednesday. This all happened from a Monday to a Friday. I saw the internal medicine doctor on Monday. I had a, another doctor on Tuesday. I had a sonogram on Wednesday. On thir- uh, The sonogram didn't show anything with my gallbladder. And I remember my husband being worried at that point. He's like, I really was thinking it was just your gallbladder. And he didn't say anything of what it could be. I was Googling things. I had Googled things. I thought bile duct cancer. Um, I don't think I thought pancreatic even then. Yeah. Then on, um, so that was the sonogram on Thursday and we were getting kind of worried. And then, um, I think on Friday they did a CAT scan, an MRI, a CAT scan on that whisper. Yeah. And they, I remember maybe it was a different test. I'm happy, you know, now it's already almost seven years. I think it was a, a different thing they did. And I remember the nurse, I'm on the table. Um, I wish I could think of the procedure because it wasn't a CAT scan or an MRI. CAT scan? No, no. it wasn't that. Was that the, um, where they went in through your belly button? I don't know. I don't want to give wrong. You see, I, I, I brought some notes. But I was, I was under anesthesia for this procedure. And I remember coming out of it and the nurse saying that you have a tumor on your pancreas. And I was like, what? Huh. What? And I'm crying. I'm crying. And the doctor was actually talking to my husband on the phone in the room and telling him what was going on. And my, my other daughter, uh, my older daughter picked me up from that procedure. And I was just, you know, crying. I said, I've got a tumor, my pancreas, I've got pancreatic cancer. And, you know, she took me home to her house. I spent the night there in her bed. My husband, I should say, still practices in Corpus Christi. So he commutes back and forth. So he wasn't with me. He came, I think, the next day. Um, But I spent the night at her house. It was a very long, sleepless night of just nothing but crying and um, shock. Um, But at that time, you didn't know, other than that they said you've got a tumor. They knew that it was cancerous. Uh, but they yeah. didn't give you any staging or talk about anything further. Yeah. You just knew what you knew at a very yeah. high level. Exactly. Uh, and then so, I, yeah, go ahead. So I, I just want to pause here for a second. I know you said the itching, which it, which is a sign. A lot of people don't realize that um, and a little bit of jaundice. But if you look back, and hindsight's always twenty twenty. Um, you know, stage two B is an early stage cancer, um, which in this case, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit, you know, is also, um, a good thing, um, because then you hopefully then become operable at some point. But if we look prior to September 16, health issues, health, fine, nothing, nothing that you could think back. No, no, hindsight's always. Yeah. My mom had had breast cancer, bladder cancer. I thought if anything, I'll get breast cancer, you know, yeah. but, um, but she didn't die. Well, not really directly from that, but 
yeah, I was just so shocked. Um, no, nothing, you know, and, and I would ask my husband, I would ask my kids, I mean, what did I do? Did I do something? My husband said, no, you didn't do anything. It's just bad luck, you know, and that's, that is kind of how we feel. I don't feel like people do anything wrong. I know people say I wasn't overweight, particularly. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not a smoker. Um, I drink a cocktail maybe once or twice a week at the most. Um, You know, yeah, it was shocking. And I, I think I'd said earlier, my, I had just had my second grandson born. He was only six weeks old. Um, and I remember I said, why is God doing this to me? Why would God want to take me away from this baby and my other grandson? And, um, cause I really thought, you know, maybe I didn't have a feeling like I'm going to die in a second, you know, but I just thought that is what's going to happen to me. And I'm only 56, you know, at that time, um, Again, when I went to MD Anderson, uh, walked in those doors thinking, I can't believe I'm here. I think I'd only been to MD Anderson one time and it was to visit someone. Um, and Dr. Wolf just really gave me hope. And, you know, I think I had, again, I had to have testing done again, but they, finally, or, you know, not too long after that, determined that I was a candidate for the Whipple. And they said only 20%. And I think even at that time, time, I don't know if that's more now. No, it's one in five. So yeah, that's, that's about right. Right. You know, so So like one in five. Kind of the same. And, and that was my best chance if you could have the Whipple. And so I really wanted that Whipple. It's like wishing, you know, wanting something that's not going to be pleasant, but I really wanted it. Yeah. And first he did, um, I had five rounds of of chemotherapy. Yeah. You did chemo and radiation. And then I had five weeks of radiation every day, five days a week. Um, the chemo, I wouldn't say it was great, but I tolerated it very well. He told me I wouldn't lose my hair. Now, the what they do now, I think, is different because I have a very close friend diagnosed uh, within this last year. She had a much stronger chemo, did lose mm-hmm. her hair. But whatever they did for me six, seven years ago was um, tolerable. You know, like he said, you won't lose your hair. It may thin a little. I had some nausea, threw up a handful of times but nothing like what I imagined was not as bad as I thought and my husband and I still went on a trip my oncologist was very uh pro-travel he, was, yeah. he didn't believe in disrupting my life I said well you know one of the trips uh I was gonna miss a chemo or just have to have it a week later. And I yeah. said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to jeopardize. If that is going to jeopardize my care, I don't want to go on the trip. He said, no, I'm going to be honest with you. It's not going to, it's fine. He goes, you can do it a week later. It's fine. 
He was very much like, I want you to live your life. I want you, you know, to do all the things you've been doing and I want you to keep doing them. Um, so he, I mean, he he was very great. And my husband really started to change as I was changing. I was becoming more optimistic. He was becoming more optimistic. My kids were becoming more optimistic. Um, it was contagious optimism and, um, yeah, my husband was just very impressed with me that I was being so, I, I, I remember telling my husband, you know, I'm going to have chemo every other week and we can still go on that trip and I can do this. That's what I said to him. I can do this. And he was like choked up, you know, so proud of me. And, um, but I, I really felt that way. I feel like I, I can do this. And I don't know if you remember this, Stacy, but her husband is a time or at that time a full-time musician. And I had him make me a playlist of really upbeat, positive songs to listen to. We weren't married yet. I don't yeah, think I think you were with another thing. I was like, yeah. my mom's not gonna be there. I'm not gonna she get married. Yeah, she won't see. And wow. now I saw her get married and she has two children. And yeah, like none of that we could have imagined. We would no, we did not imagine. And I and you know what I I said to you earlier that I have talked to a lot of people. If anyone hears, oh, I've got a friend, I've got a sister-in-law, I've got a friend of a friend, can they call you? Can they talk to you? And not all of them do end up calling me, but I always say yes, I will talk to them. Mm-hmm. Um and even if I'm reluctant to talk to ones that don't have a good upfront diagnosis like it's a stage four they can't have the whipple um a friend of mine that is a melanoma survivor he said something to me that what you've got to do is keep living keep getting whatever they can offer you because the longer you live they're coming out with things all the time yeah so don't ever give up that hope i mean i i've had some setbacks but the longer I'm here, the longer I do believe. And like you said, there's chance, you know, for something to to be discovered, another mm-hmm. treatment. Um, and it's also easy to like accept the diagnosis and just be like, oh, you know, this is what it is. And then have a miserable time with whatever time you have left. Or who cares if even if you're a little delusional, wouldn't you rather be? happy in the last few you and know it's hard home. to do that sometimes it's, it's very hard to do yeah. that but I was like I'd rather be delusional and think she's gonna be in the three percent than well, that's not, yeah. accept her her fate like we thought at the time you know I was yeah. like I'd rather live in delusion which it's not delusion but, but you then know, I you know I kept thinking things were going I mean the chemo Actually, to me, and that's another thing, okay, my friend that recently had chemo, it was rough on her. But I don't know. I think every case is different. Um, Yeah. She didn't have radiation. So I don't know. Again, they do different protocols, um, you know, just because the amount of years that have gone by. So she she did not have radiation. I actually found radiation to be a little more uncomfortable than the chemo it actually made me nauseous more than yeah. the chemo 
I know the guys there at MD Anderson, and they've been ahead of the curve a bit. And this is, uh, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll, I want to get back to you know the surgery and everything, but the the protocol now, if you're gonna do surgery, and I think MD Anderson was the first to to uh, to do this protocol, and then they released some data that made sense. Um, and I think I mentioned, you know, we we've helped uh, a, a clinician there, Eugene Coy, who's a radiation oncologist at MD Anderson, and his big thing was um, radiation before surgery. Oh, really? And yeah, and so if you go down, um, see, so I think I believe what the standard is now is you do six rounds or eight rounds of chemotherapy, um, then six weeks of radiation, and then you go in for your Whipple. And right. the way it was explained to me, and this is kind of fascinating, and I think we've talked a little bit about this on the podcast before, but what radiation does is it actually toughens up the pancreas because if you, uh, I don't know, if we'll, we'll get to this here in a second about the Whipple. The pancreas is like a sponge. So imagine taking your, your household sponge and cutting it and then trying to suture that. It's like almost near impossible, right? right. But what radiation does is it toughens that sponge up and makes it really, really hard and fibrous, which, uh, which tends to, uh, lead from the, the, the study at MD Anderson to better, uh, outcomes in terms of surgery with less complications. Um, so that's why, and then also the benefit of, you know, radiating now radiation, I think, you know, people hear radiation. And, and as I mentioned, you know, my mom before the podcast, uh, we had record, you know, she's gone through breast cancer a couple of times and, you know, back in 01, like radiation was so different it's so precise now. Like, you know, they would blast the whole area, right? Like yeah. old school radiation was to just throw this big, yeah. you know, chunk of radiation at you and then hope that they hit the spot, right? Now it's so precise. Like they can actually, you know, radiate things like the pancreas through all the organs and kind of dodge everything. Yeah, they give uh, you like a, like a temporary tattoo of the- Correct, air. correct. So they can pr be super, super precise. Like a race yeah. Yeah. So it could be super precise. Right. And so that's where, you know, to your point, what you said, um, and I think Stacy mentioned this too, it's like, I use the term of, of boxing, like the analogy of boxing, like you're always getting knocked down. It's a matter of getting back up because we don't know what's coming down the pipeline, right? Just recently here in the last two months, we've heard about these vaccines that Memorial Sloan Kittering did. They had this right. successful right. vaccine trial, right? So we just don't know. And there's so much being done. Um, unfortunately, you know, with the pandemic, things were a little sidetracked for a couple of years, but I, th I feel now we're back on track um, and there's so much happening. So it, it you just don't know. You just don't know. The, the, the key is to stay in the game exactly. and stay in the game That's as long as you can. Stay in the game. And as hard as it is sometimes, try to, it sounds so cliche to say, stay positive. But um, I really did. I really, I just, I wanted to live so badly. Um, I had so much to live for. I just have a great family, um, a great life. And I just wanted to, to keep going. So you meet Dr. Wolf, everything changes. You do the chemo, you do the radiation, yeah. and then you go in for your Whipple. So I went in for the Whipple and I wrote some notes down, but I kind of remember it was March of 2017 and I went in for the Whipple and here's where it's a little bit of a black mark on MD Anderson, I guess. 
But well, we don't want to say that, but no. we just this is where we'll say I didn't have don't always accept what people tell you. Well, right. Yeah. You're the best advocate. So I met with the surgeon. I didn't pick the surgeon. I don't know if he was who how I got this surgeon. It was just like assigned to me randomly. I don't even think Dr. Wolf particularly selected him or anything like that. Um, I met with him. He seemed very nice. He was also very upbeat. He said, I said, am I going to be okay after this? That was another thing my husband, the doctor, was worried about because he'd seen in his uh, education, medical school residency, that people who had a Whipple were kind of a mess afterwards, you know, couldn't eat normally, had a lot of issues. There was a um, lot of talk about whether the morbidity of the procedure outweighed, outweighed the benefits. Yeah. I remember that. And, and they so, just made it, they made the Whipple sound awful to they me. They did. They made it sound awful, but I really wanted it. And this doctor was very, he said, oh, I'll show you pictures in my office of people you know, skydiving and rafting and hiking and traveling and living their life. And you, it's going to be fine. But he goes, you know, it's like training for a marathon. I want you to walk every day. And so mm-hmm. I really took it seriously. And I walked every day, um, you know, just like on a treadmill or whatever for 20, 30 minutes. I'm not a huge, I'm not real good at exercising, <laughs> but I, I made an effort. And then the day came. And we knew there was a chance. They tell you that if they get in there and it doesn't look right, we don't do it because obviously if we find that you have uh, metastases, it's not worth it to get a Whipple because basically what they're saying is you're not going to live that long. Yeah. That's how they explained it to me. Why? Why? Maybe not in their last couple of days or weeks recovering. From the surgery. It, it's not going to help uh-huh. them in the long run. So anyway, this doctor opened me up and he felt something on my liver. And he felt like that was a metastasis. And he closed me up, came out and talked to my family. And of course, we were back to square one. They were devastated. Well, there they, was a lot of notes. They later biopsied whatever he found yeah. on your liver. And they found that it was an old metastasis from the pancreatic cancer primary, but all the cells were dead. All the cells were dead. So they then they thought that meant that she was originally stage four, and we just didn't know. Um, so that's why, you know, stage four has a poor prognosis, Whipple surgery not appropriate. So surgery was aborted. Um, we call that the Whipple that wasn't. Um, so let me just, I just, I yeah. just want to jump in here. So they go in, he sees something, they biopsy it. He stops. He doesn't go any further. They sew you back up. Exactly. I, I don't mean that in a rude way, but that's yeah. basically what they do. That's exactly. Right? And then you wake up to all of this. Yeah. And I was, you know, with an anesthesia, I, I was saying, I remember my daughters telling me, I repeated it like a hundred times. I kept saying, well, you know, I'll probably can have the surgery in a few weeks. I can probably have it. I don't know where I got that idea, but I was like, but at that time, no, they were not thinking I could have the surgery, but when they, because the cells were dead, because they were non-diagnosed, it was like a little bit of a gray area. Yeah. And this is when 
the tumor board met and the, and we're not in agreement. Uh, not in agreement. Yeah. But my Dr. Wolf felt like I was still a candidate from everything yeah. saying, but I basically had five weeks of doctors not agreeing and yeah. trying to be my own advocate and push for the Whipple. And I was getting very frustrated. Well, you know, you said this and you said that. And um, Dr. Wolf was doing what he could. And finally, how do you, what well, so she, I'm looking through my notes, but she had an MRI to evaluate the liver more completely. Um, it showed uh, some cysts, hemangiomas, a couple of other things, but nothing that looked like metastasis um, or metastasis. Um, it also showed that the primary tumor in the pancreas had responded to treatment and was smaller. But they, at MD Anderson, they were not 100% on board and they have to be 100% in agreement to do the Whipple there. Well, we had heard about another doctor at Methodist, Dr. Rosenberg, who's a general surgeon, but he's done Whipples. You can Google his name. He'll come up as like the Whipple master. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were like, we want this guy. Like, let's just see what he thinks. <laughs> um, and we went and saw him and he wanted to operate. Um, you know, he looked at the MRI. He looked at everything. So she well, actually kind of summarizing. Well, she's summarizing. I'm going to correct her a little bit. I had actually seen Rosenberg first. Mm-hmm. My other son-in-law knew of him. He said, "You got to see this guy. The best." Went to see him. He said he looked at all my tests. He goes, "Yeah, you're a candidate for the Whipple. I want to operate on you right now." And I said, "Well." It was very tempting and they, and my kids were like, yeah, do it, do it. But I said, no, I want to go to MD Anderson. And so to make a long story short, I went to MD Anderson, met with Dr. Wolf, agreed with him doing the chemo and radiation first. And that's how I ended up everything going to MD Anderson, including that surgeon who didn't do the Whipple. And then, so then when all this started happening, her oncologist, he agreed was was in agreement with Dr. Rosenberg at Metzast. So he permitted her to go outside of, you know, against the tumor board's recommendations, get the Whipple with Dr. Rosenberg. And he said, you can come right back to me for your treatment, you know, because I did have chemo afterwards too. So basically I had my surgery at Methodist and then I went right back Back to Dr. Rose and Andy Anderson. And when Dr. Rosenberg, at Methodist did my Whipple. Um, so Dr. Rosenberg came out of the surgery after about three and a half hours. Yeah. Three and a half. We were expecting like an 11 hour surgery. You can Google anything, you know, again, yeah. we we're going by. He comes out and he, I remember because I was there and he came up to my dad and he said, the specimen is out. Is really? That's, that's what he said. He's a very, he doesn't have a very good bedside manner, which we had also heard. Um, but he is, Great. I mean, who does a Whipple in three hours? Like, he does them like all the time. Yeah. So he's like, yeah. And th- now we were like happy again. You know, we had the Whipple. He did it. It was successful. Of course, we needed was- to know the pathology and all that. And I was in the hospital. And this is something I want to mention too that I was in the hospital eight nights, went home on the ninth day. I had a gas, uh, what do you call it, nasogastric tube yep. for five days. My friend who just 
that I was talking about earlier who had a recent diagnosis. Um, she was in the hospital like maybe four or five days and had that tube in for one day. Mm-hmm. And so even that, I don't know if it's a case by case difference or the doctors do things. She had a different surgeon. Uh-huh. She actually had her surgery at MD Anderson. So she yeah. did great with her surgeon that, um, that she had at MD Anderson. It was great. They had that tube out quickly because that's very uncomfortable. Um, but anyway, I was in the hospital for a little over a week, but I remember Dr. Rosenberg coming in with the best news and telling me that my pathology report was great. There was no spreadage and the lymph nodes were all negative. Um, and we were just like ecstatic. And we're sort of like, you know, I, I wrote some notes down, so we're sort of like summarizing, but I wrote, you know, that you did uh, five more rounds of more intravenous chemotherapy yeah. coupled with oral chemotherapy. Yeah. And then by September, 2017, everybody was happy with you and she was um, in surveillance. Right. Uh, you know. So how long, I, I just want to back up. So you have the Whipple that doesn't in seven, March of yeah. 17. And then what do you wait about five weeks? Five weeks. Because I would imagine though that, I mean, Whipple goes usually sternum to belly button. So did they use that same, so that incision yeah, so had to I heal, had right? Then, that didn't, that he didn't do it, but, he just, but you know, it's a big incision. Yeah. And it was, I had to recover from that. I was in the hospital four nights. Yep. A lot of pain, a lot, yeah. of pain, I will say. Um, and then I went home and yeah, I was very uncomfortable and mentally and physically. Oh yeah. But when they cut me the second time, all those nerves had been cut. So the yeah. incision pain was not bad. Oh. And I remember just, yeah, I didn't have that. You get like a spasm pain from the surgery yeah. in a certain way. And it's like, oh, it hurts. But the second time, the actual Whipple that Rosenberg did, um, the pain there was not bad. And my husband was the one who said, yeah, because all your nerves have already been Yeah, already been cut. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. What was very uncomfortable was that tube. The tube, yeah. And people, your sister, she was like, I don't understand. How come that, you know, you, you would think. She was surprised that that was what was so uncomfortable. I said, my throat is just killing me from this. Um, She thought, well, it's just a bad sore throat. But I said, no, it's, I don't know. I can't explain it. It was just so bad. And I, you can't drink or eat with it. So I'm dying of thirst and want you right away to walk around, you know, and uh, walk in by that vending machine with the sodas and I, Uh, yeah well i know that's uh that's something i mean i know you said you mentioned your friend i know the one thing that i I guess you know the whipple's been around for 50 years right yeah i don't know if people really realize that and and it hasn't really changed but from talking to clinicians i think the one thing that has changed is you know 10 15 years ago and even in your case you know we're going back you know seven years six years here you know that they're getting patients up out quicker Right. Yeah. Like now, like to your point, like your friend one day with a the tube, they're up exactly. a day, yeah. you know, they, they, and they've gotten better. I feel with the comp post complications, you know, 10, 15 oh, years ago, sure. there were a lot of complications and 
Uh, we're not trying and I to. My husband felt like he learned in medical school residency a lot of complications, and I had a few concerns. I can't remember. There was something. I'm not. I'm not a very medical person. Yeah. Even though I'm going to a doctor. I'm like, no. Leave, leave that to the husband. So, uh, something about amylase or something. There was something they had to keep monitoring, and someone out there is going to hear that word and think I'm an idiot, but. Um, <laughs> no, I don't think so. No, I mean, I, I mean, there were some issues. I had to be real careful what I ate for several. Correct. Weeks. Well, there's a real why they're replumbing the entire yeah. plumbing system, yeah. right? And reconnecting, you know, your small intestine, your stomach, and and you know, marginal. You know, they're taking out a huge margin of tissue. Few, that that brings us back to the bumps in the road. Correct. It has been, like, you know, it's not like she got the whipple and oh, she was like fine. Well, Correct. Was Correct. Yeah, but- so, let me just so let, let's keep on track here with the timeline. Yeah. So September seventeen, you get any deed like, hey, you're good. Yeah. You're mm-hmm. in surveillance. There's yeah. no evidence of disease. You did there the chemo whipple. Every- yeah, you do the scans every three months, six months. months. Yeah. Yep. So then let's talk about what you're just brought up, which I think is important because I think, I think Stacy, you just said, it's like, oh, you get the Whipple and then you go home. That's not the case. Like you're, wow. you're changing. I said the plumbing changes. Yeah. You're depending on the Whipple. They may take out your gallbladder, your they spleen. Do. There's all these all like, yeah. you know, yeah. gallbladder is responsible for a lot, which I know like people talk about it all the time. Like, ah, oh, I got this pain. I just had my gallbladder removed. Well, that is a big deal. Like you can't yeah. eat the way you used to eat. I know because I had mine removed a couple years back and everything changed for me, uh, from a digestive standpoint. Um, so there's a lot of things that happen, right. And you kind of have to now move forward with life, not only in the back of your mind, getting scanned every three months, six months, yeah. four months, whatever that duration is, but now you've got to figure this whole plumbing issue out and all these yeah. other things that happened. So what's, what's and been going was, on? Like what? If I really think back to that time, um, and again, we went on a trip, but I would have to sometimes go to the bathroom imminently. Yeah. I remember being like on a canoe with my husband and I was like, get me back. <laughs> and it was close. And then there's a thing that I know a lot of people out there have heard of dumping syndrome which is what it sounds like. And so you did have to be careful what you ate, but I don't, I want to point out that on that trip, which was probably the summer after the Whipple. So not that long after. um, And and it actually wasn't the first trip. We had gone to New York a month after the Whipple. And I I ate carefully, but on the second trip, we went to a fine dining restaurant, which had like a seven course tasting meal. And I said to my husband, yeah, let's get it. And my husband, we ate it. I ate a little bit of everything. And my husband literally cried. He goes, I can't believe you. I can't believe we can do this. I never thought you would be able to enjoy a meal like this. And I, it was kind of like, sometimes I would do okay after eating would take the Creon back in those days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now I haven't taken it in years. I don't, I didn't notice a huge difference when I, some people absolutely have to take it. And I think there's yeah. no problem with that. Um, for me, I took it for a while and then I felt like I didn't need it. So um, if I'm pretty careful, 
um, I do, I do great. Now, every now and then, you know, I'm only human. I want to eat that fried chicken. I want to eat that. I'm not real big on sweets anymore, but Mm -hmm. sugar is not great. Fried foods are not great. That's kind of the two main things. Um, But for the most part, I do, I do pretty well, but the, um, back, so that kind of relates to the eating thing, but the bumps in the road have more to do with the way they reconnect everything. And you're probably better now. I'm not at this, but you can kind of, so like our two big bumps in the road after having the whip over the liver abscesses that happened. And I would be curious, like, I'm going to follow your podcast to see if other people, um, I've, I've asked the doctors, but, you know, they don't, I don't know, I don't feel real informed about that if it's as common. I'd like to know, I mean, they say it happens. Liver abscesses? The way, yeah, the way that you're, like, my husband has explained it to me, and it's still hard to understand, but. It's something to do with the way everything is now that things can get backed up. You're more susceptible to that happening and to infection. And that's what happened to her two times. So back in 2018, I got two liver abscesses, like maybe a month apart, that really scared the crap out of me because they were very, I was very sick, was in the hospital um, uh, the same or longer as I was for the Whipple. You know, they have to drain it. They First, they have to figure out what it is. They have to drain it. They um, they have to treat the infection. The infection with antibiotics. And then you go home with a pick line and mm-hmm, two, mm-hmm. two or more, actually more than that, weeks of um, IV antibiotics. Um, so both of those happened back to back and I was very worried this was going to be my life like I thought well I had one okay but when I had the second one I was like well what's going on here you know I did so well for a year and now I'm going to have this all the time I I didn't want to deal with that I was really really sick um and very scared you know that okay I didn't die from the tumor or the cancer, I'm going to die from these infections. And so that really scared me. And I guess what happened, um, we kind of learned to recognize the symptoms. If, if I was going to get one, I would start with fever and chills. And fortunately, it didn't happen frequently. But if it happened, if I said to my husband, you know, I'm, I'm shaking. I'm, sh- you know, I'm, I'm, I would get so shaky and, uh, I couldn't hardly move. He would give me antibiotics. Dr. Wolf, my oncologist would in- make, ensure that I always had these two antibiotics on hand. And my husband would be take the antibiotics right away. And so get would, on that. And the right next away. day I would be better. And then I would still take them for a week or so. And we learned to kind of nip it in the bud. Mm-hmm. And thank God it didn't happen too much. And for five years, I was really pretty good. I mean, a few little incidents. I had a bad scan one time that didn't look good. But then I had another one and everything was better. And I'm kind of, you know, summarizing. But 
she's, she's, she's yeah. such a long survivor, you know, it's hard to remember. It's hard to remember. But um, the latest worst bump in the road was this thing that caught your podcast attention because my daughter posted about it. So five years was my last abscess. Hmm. But I had this VAPS procedure. Well, because you were still doing the scans and they had every six months, I would do the scans. You know, the general thing is they call it a chest, abdomen and pelvic CT scan with contrast. And they noticed I had this little tumor lung and that it was very, it'd been there for like two years, but it was so small and it was growing slow. And I wasn't really that worried about it. And nobody else seemed that worried about it. But Dr. Wolf did think a thoracic surgeon should look at it. And he looked at it and said, yeah, we should take it out. And um, they call it a VATS procedure, which I think stands for video assisted thoracic surgery. Yeah. And um it didn't sound too terrible. Um, am I going too fast? Or? No, I just, I so they, um, they were going to send a, a frozen section analysis and sent. They were thinking if it was pancreatic cancer metastasis as expected, then they would um, try to read. Well, they, they were going to remove it. They were going to remove yeah. it, see what it was, you know, and if it was what we thought, then we, you know, determine if I needed more, more Yeah. So the doctor removed it April 24th of this year. So just like two months ago. And it turned out it was a little more uncomfortable than I thought it would be. But I had a lot of pain here in this area and I was home the next day they sent me home and I was very uncomfortable a lot of pain um very tired fatigued you know they want you to walk around just like everything today get up walk around very hard I was very reluctant um and I'm trying to say if I'm saying enough, but I went for like eight days of that pain, nausea, no appetite, fever and chills, but on and off. And everything I thought and was told was recovery from this VAPS procedure. These were all symptoms, never thinking liver abscess that was last one five years ago. No, we, we probably spent too long waiting because we thought it was just pain from the surgery pain from the surgery and yeah, it happened to be a liver abscess me. like you say hindsight yeah. is 2020 i mean so anyway on day eight i guess of this i actually thought i was doing a little better hmm. this is what's so crazy i thought i was doing better my older daughter took me to get a manicure that day you know i still wasn't driving so she took me to get a manicure i said you know Andrea, really, I think I'm turning a corner. I think I'm doing a little better. Came home. She took me home and she dropped me off. And then maybe an hour later, I had like a nosedive. I was shivering, shaking, couldn't move. 
I, I wanted to get warm. I and again, my dad was in corpus. My, yeah, my husband. And things were just getting really bad. And I actually called. I didn't want to bother my daughter. So I called my sister-in-law who lives here. And I said, can you just come over? And I think when you get these, I have read that they kind of make you not think mm. clearly either. And I said, can you just come over and help me get in some warm clothes? I couldn't move. She was becoming septic, but we yeah. just didn't know. Um, From the liver abscess though. So mm-hmm. this was all related to the liver. Yeah. But having this procedure was kind of mimicking masking. or masking. masking. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Masking. Exactly. So she gets me changed and she stays with me for a while, calling my husband. Um, later in the evening, my father-in-law came over. That's my husband's father, who is a, also a head and neck surgeon. So a doctor, but retired. My husband had him come over and check on me and tell told him to give me some antibiotics that we keep on hand. Mm-hmm. Um, again, in hindsight, I think I should have been on antibiotics after the surgery, but I was only on them for maybe 24 hours. I think, you know, kind of routine after surgery. Yeah, just to kick it. Yep. Yeah. And so my father-in-law comes over, but I'm getting worse and worse. I threw up the antibiotics. Then my older daughter comes over because my husband was, I guess he was communicating with both girls and my older daughter you know, she's home with two little kids. He told my older daughter, go over to your mom's, see what's going on. This is already nine o'clock that night. And she had, you know, seen me in the afternoon when we got her nails done. You had also <clears throat> taken the antibiotic and thrown, and up thrown it up. So I didn't have any antibiotic in my system. <clears throat> she comes over. I am really doing terribly. Um, she's talking to my husband. And this is all a little foggy to me, but... Mm. He tells her to take me to the emergency room and he's going to drive up right away. And he usually, it was a Wednesday night. He comes up on Thursday nights and stays through Sunday night or Monday. And that's our routine. He goes, I'm leaving Corpus now and I'm, I'm coming there. I'll be there in three hours, but your mom is not, you know, he was very worried and he said, take her to the emergency room. So, and for him to drive up, you know, at nine p.m. and, rearranges it. He had surgeries the next day with his patients that he had to reschedule. And I think he was really thinking this is sounding terrible. So Andrea takes me to the ER and I don't know if this is all things I should be talking about on this, but if you say, yeah, no, 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 no. So you get through, she gets me to the MD Anderson and I've never even been to an emergency room at MD Anderson and in the car, I was saying to Andrea, do they have an emergency room? Because I thought it's a cancer hospital. And my yes. husband's like, no, of course they have an emergency room. We went room. there because that was where she had the back procedure. Yeah. Um, and so we went there and the worst thing happened. I get, well, I shouldn't say the worst things. A lot of bad things happened, but um, I basically, my blood pressure completely dropped. And for anyone out there who's had that happen, you feel like you're going to die. I couldn't, I couldn't sit or I was just like wilting completely. Mm. And um, I couldn't see. I remember I could see, but I couldn't, it was like being blind, but you, 
you can kind of see what's going on, but you can't. And I remember this order, uh, not an orderly, an ER doctor or technician telling my daughter, Andrea, just, this is all I remember. He goes, we got her, we got your mom. We're going to take care of her and things are going to happen fast. We're going to take her here. We're going to do this. And he goes, it's going to happen fast. Don't worry. You know, that's all I remember, you know, and um, I guess they did a CT scan and they determined that I had a huge liver abscess, bigger than the two others I'd had combined and very serious and becoming septic. Yeah. And, you know, I know my daughter was telling me what was happening. She's like, mom, you have a very bad liver abscess. Daddy's on the way. Um, but I mean, it was, my mind was not working clearly and it was a bad, it was a bad time time. and it was, I'll kind of make it short. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I mean, we can just kind of summarize and then whatever questions, but she was, there for 11 days while they figured things out. They did multiple drainage procedures. It wasn't even like um, one drainage procedure wasn't enough. Like yeah. they had to keep mm. going back. Um, I had a bag out of me that literally smelled because it was the pus. Or yeah. Pus. Oh, from I, the abscess. Yeah. Yeah. The drain, and then yeah. I had these symptoms that my husband referred to as bacteremia. Yeah, where the bacteria is getting into the blood. Um, Mm -hmm. So while I'm, you know, in the hospital, I'm having the fever. I mean, the, yes, fever. I mean, I'm on IV medicine at this point and they're taking good care of me, but I'm still, because it's not draining completely, I'm still having the shivers and chills. And this other thing was happening where I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't breathe. And I thought they were all telling me that it was a panic attack or that I just was. And I kept saying, no, I literally can't breathe. I felt suffocating. Like, and later my husband explained to me that when this happens, it's a symptom of the bacteremia that you literally feel like you can't breathe. But you can breathe. If that makes sense. But it's very hard to explain. And I kept. Saying, you know, no, I couldn't. And they're, they're like, all these doctors and nurses are like in my face saying, just breathe through your nose and out. But I couldn't. I just, or I felt like I couldn't. So it's a horrible feeling and it would last for like an hour. And I felt like my eyes were bulging out. Like, I don't know how I look to you. I think it scared you. Scary. And it was, you know, not good. And the, um, they also said that I was freaking out. Some of the nurses on the, I was on the thoracic surgery floor yeah. and I'm having this, you know, I'm saying no one's helping me. Why is no, I'm kind of like that. I'm being a bit of a hysterical patient and they moved me to the ICU for 24 hours so they could deal with it. And during that time, they drained me again. Um, and whenever they're going to drain you at, in the hospital, they were doing most of those drainage procedures under general anesthesia. So you have to fast for however long it takes for them to get to you. So you're like thirsty. I remember one time saying, I'm so thirsty. I said, can I 
you said I could drink at right after the procedure, right? I kept saying that, like, there's no waiting time, right? You said I could drink. And they're like, yes, you can drink the minute you come out. <laughs> um, but I had to wait so long. MD Anderson is like so busy. Big, yeah. With people, sick people, you know? And so you'd have to wait, like, till the end of the day sometimes for them to do these procedures and just the whole 11 days in the hospital, a lot of, and she had to go home with IV antibiotics again, which yeah. she just got, the I just got out uh, last Friday. Right? Well, I was just going to say, so if you look at the timeline, you said this was around the 24th with yes. the procedure. Yes, so for, yeah, so this was like Mother's Day. I am just yeah, literally the day before Mother's Day. Yeah. Yeah. So but that then I had, had to, to be go awful. back to MD Anderson every day that following week for checkup with the doctor, F scan, another drainage procedure. Um they actually I think wanted to keep me in the hospital like maybe another week yeah. and do all that. But I was really miserable. My husband pushed for me to get out. He said we can do all that as an outpatient. Um, and they agreed to do that. And so that was a rough week. And, you know, it's been a rough several weeks. And only in the last, I would say, week or two, I have started to really feel like my old self. Well, you look great. So I don't Thank know. You. That... <laughs> I mean, I'm feeling really good. I have a few issues yeah. still going on where I, I have some pain where the abscess was that scares me a little bit. I also have my lung issue is not quite resolved. It hasn't fully expanded. They know that from x-rays, but I feel so the, like 85% back to the, my old abnormal self. That's what I call it. Which is better than the alternative. Better than anything. Yeah. So the lung issue came back that it was nothing like that was like, well, it was what it was. It was yeah. metastases, but they said they got it all out. And my oncologist said, we're not going to do anything at this time, but surveillance again. So she like yeah. back, it back, back in the survey. Right. Yeah. They don't, they think they got it all. And my oncologist, in fact, when I saw him last, you know, at that time, I think that was already like three weeks ago. And he was kind of like getting a kick out of the fact that I wasn't worried about the cancer. I said, no. I'm fine with that. You got it all. I said, I'm scared from the abscess because it was caused all that misery for 11 days plus. Yeah. And, he, and that, he, it was funny kind of to him because most people are worried about their cancer. The cancer, correct, um, versus an abscess. Truth, a, a byproduct of that, I guess. Correct. But, um, correct. It really freaked me out. I felt like I was near death. I felt... I had just so many. Were near death. I was, and, and it's a, it's something we're concerned about. You know, for the future, if she needs another procedure, she doesn't seem to do well with surgeries post Whipple. Yeah, because she's susceptible to those. I would actually be next time on antibiotics. I think before, during, and after. Because well, it's, it's yeah, and it's it's so serious. I mean. Stacy, you just said the infections are really, really serious, and I, I would just want to make sure you know the audience listening. I mean, that that's like the not to any, be ignored. Yeah. yeah, no, but like any type of surgical procedure is serious, you know, and that's where I think you know we talk about this often. Um, 
you know, just because you get the Whipple doesn't mean that everything is over. Like no, once I'm you're done with the Whipple, you're, you're really never going to be out of the woods, but Correct. you can manage things. But, you know, I had heard even five years ago when I had the first abscess, I had heard of a woman who had pancreatic cancer, had the Whipple, was doing great. And then all of a sudden she got some kind of infection and she died. Yeah. So I was very scared. Like I thought, okay, the cancer didn't get me, but I'm going to get some weird infection. And so I was very in the back of my mind, already kind of nervous about something like that. Um, and I think that's still always a concern because, you know, with the Whipple, they change everything. You're more vulnerable. Um, correct. Correct. Everything. But I feel like if I can live through what I lived through, and maybe this is, sounds silly, but it just seems so horrible to me. But, but I really do want to tell people out there that you, even in the hospital, once I, maybe once the 48 hours were up, they were saying to me, you're going to be okay. You're going to, you're not going to die from this. You know, they told me that and that should have reassured me. But I think still mentally, I was so freaked out and scared and not feeling well that that wasn't reassuring me. But I want to say the fact that I'm still here should reassure people. But you do have to be on top of things. You know, you can't let things go. I mean, you can't just think it's COVID or it's the flu. In, in the case of a pancreatic patient who's had a Whipple, you gotta really uh, stay on top of things. So powerful what you just said, yeah. Pam. I've got a couple questions here left yeah. for you, and the, and the the next couple questions I always say are loaded. Uh, there's no right or wrong, um, and then okay. we're gonna share where our audience can kind of follow along with your journey okay. or, or reach out to you. Given what you've gone through, what you've explained. Um, what would be the best advice for someone listening that just gets diagnosed? What are, you know, and this could be a couple things. Um, sure. Yeah. But well, for someone yeah, listening. It goes back to what I said before. Take it from me, even though nobody wants to hear the words cancer of any kind. But if you hear it, try, try, try so hard. Um, even Dr. Wolf says this on one of his videos, if you recall, take a breath. Take a breath and think, and please hear my words. It is not a death sentence. And it, it does not, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to blow or false hope at people's, you know what, but really try to stay as positive as you can until you get more information from a hospital facility, a doctor who's knowledgeable and and just remember that there really is, as long as you stay alive and upbeat, there is hope. There's things coming out all the time, different treatments, different procedures. Uh, and doctors are wrong all the time. And doctors um, are wrong. My husband, you know, any doctor. Coming from husband, a doctor, uh, married to a doctor. <laughs> it's, but I mean, it's true. You, you know, he'll say, you know, medicine is actually not an exact science. Correct. And um, you just never know. Right. And I mean, I know when we first got the diagnosis, it was like a very, very dark 
time in all of our lives. Um, And people would tell me, oh, well, did they catch it early? And I'd be like, well, pancreatic cancer doesn't work that way. Like usually by the time they catch it, it's too late, you know, but Mm -hmm. we knew that, but other people didn't know that. And I remember getting angry when people would say that to me. I'm like, yeah. So it it is, I'm not saying you're not going to cry and feel, I mean, but, and I'm not the longest survivor. I mean, I would put it to you to ask maybe in your experience. I mean, I hear people 10 years, 20 even. I don't know what the exact situation is. I don't know what their initial, you know, diagnosis was, but I'm just saying, I, I don't think it's an automatic death sentence at all. And I would say, sure, look at the statistics, but think the other way. Think yeah, that you can be in the 12%. Um, that was a big thing for us in the very, very beginning. I thought, yeah, why can't she be? Why are we automatically assuming yeah. she's going to be in the in the majority? Maybe she'll be the minority. And then maybe one day the minority will become the majority. That's um, a great way to think of that, Stacey. And I hope we are all right on saying that. Yeah. My last question here, and then we're going to share where to connect uh, for our audience. Uh, this is always, uh, I always say the hardest question, but also there is no right or wrong to this. And it is a loaded question, as I say as well. Given what you've gone through, Pam, uh, your journey that you've shared with us, how do you define the term pancreatic cancer? What's your definition of it? Um, that is a hard question. I don't think I ever get up in the morning that I don't think about, I have, you know, I have pancreatic cancer. You know, it always kind of is in the back of my mind, sometimes in the front of my mind. But the definition is just something I have to live with. And that's the word, live with. I also always say that it's not the worst thing. There's way worse things. Not that anybody wants worse things, but um, it's just something I have. And I can feel, feel feel it all the time. Like I always have a little bit of incision pain from that whipple. It's always a little sore there. I have reminders if I don't eat right, but... Again, I told you, I don't always eat right, you know, but, um, I'm not judging. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you gotta kind of go with what you want sometimes. And then afterwards I'll say, why did I do that? But, um, (laughs) no, it's just something that you can live with, but I think that's the word you're living with it. You need to keep living and you have to, I mean, my husband now is like my biggest cheerleader and, you know, I do feel very reassured whenever I'm with him. Like he, I feel like he can and does take good care of me. He recognizes if something's not right. Um, and he just really pushes me to live, keep traveling, keep enjoying. I mean, the number one thing, honestly, that I enjoy in life is my family. My husband, my kids, and my grandkids, number one. And you know what? I feel like it gives me good endorphins. You know, like I really do, whatever those are, you know, (laughs) really good, you know, when I'm around them. And, and I guess when I'm traveling too, I mean, it's easier 
to keep your mind off the negative and the, you know, occasional times where you, you know, especially in this last incident I had, I had a lot of mental issues of feeling very depressed, very scared, very, very scared that I was going to slide backwards, that it was going to happen again. And I'm still kind of like that, like this could happen again, but hopefully I would nip it in the bud. So I try to say that to myself. I've also heard, and this is going to sound kind of stupid or weird, but I've heard that if you say out loud positive affirmations, like I'm going to do great today, I'm going to be happy today, but actually say it out loud, your subconscious hears it. And what the hell? It's easy to do. Just say it, <laughs> you know? Um, well, I, I'm going to jump in here. That's not weird. I used to do that. What do you mean that's weird? I do that all the okay, time. Not weird. So I, I, I went through... So uh, before my previous life, I was fortunate enough to do some training with Tony Robbins and everyone knows he's like the master motivator, right? And so I never forget this, like our subconscious um, is driven, you know, drives our conscious, right? And so, but the way to train your subconscious is to do things like that, right? Right. Like if you constantly say things out loud, your subconscious then is going to get trained as your conscious mind does, right? Well, and I'm trying to same do thing. That. I'm trying to remember Correct. everything I say. So it's super, super powerful that you said that. And uh I, I, I love everything you said. And I really want to thank you and Stacy for sharing your journey. I know it hasn't been easy. And you know, something that um you said just really, really is important is to live with it and not defining, you know, cancer hasn't defined who you are. It hasn't, you know, changed your lifestyle, um, hasn't impacted you and your family. You know, you continue to do all the things you love to do. um, And I think that's really, really important. Yeah, I really do. And I think like, you know, everybody's situation is different. You know, like we're lucky in that we have good health insurance and that your husband's a doctor. Not everybody has that. But well, I said being married to a doctor is a blessing and a curse. Correct. It's a blessing Correct. for certainly more reasons than the curse. But Correct. like even during this 11 days in the hospital, he had to go back to Corpus and see his patients. Correct. And then, you know, he didn't go when I was critical, but, um, you know, and then the knowledge that he has sometimes Correct. can be a lot of Good and bad, yeah. yeah. But at the same time, he doesn't want to... Um, have me neglecting something that's important, um, yeah. something that needs taken care of. And he's not an alarmist or a worrier. He's just realistic, I guess. Yeah. Like, yeah. doctors, I logical. Just, like, no matter what kind of support system you have, the one thing that everybody can do is just think positively. Yeah. 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 And I know it, I always say it's easier said than done. And it is. Correct. And it's yeah. hard but- when you're at your lowest. But you got to try to look for something, something worth living for. Yeah. So Even powerful. if it's just a future treatment or, you know, a pretty day, a pretty day is will do wonders. It's powerful stuff. Last thing here for someone listening, um, maybe they want to reach out to you, Pam, um, and, and talk to you a little bit about you know, whether it's Rosenberg or or Dr. Wolf or just a little bit about your journey, where's the best place for them to reach out? Or maybe it's just to follow you on social through Stacy's page. So 
because she's not super tech savvy. <laughs> but I'll say I have an Instagram. It's a public Instagram. Perfect. J C F T A C Y Z G seven one three. That's my Instagram handle. You can always message me, and I can give you her email address okay. um, or oh, her sorry. Instagram, and then that way I can give her a heads up. Up, hey, somebody's gonna reach out to you. It probably is good because I do travel a lot too. And when I'm cool, uh, I'm actually going to Borneo. She's going to wow. Borneo and Taiwan. Yeah, uh, in, in I'm jealous. I'm jealous. So I don't know how reachable I'll be. <laughs> well, when you get back, hopefully. It's but, a uh, It's yeah. awesome. It's <laughs> awesome. I, I I love it. I love it all. Stacy and Pam. Thank you for coming on to the Project Purple podcast to share to share Pam's journey with yeah, pancreatic thanks cancer. Thanks for having us. I wish this was around when she first got diagnosed, but I'm glad you know other people will get it. Yes. Well, we're paying it forward. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear today, feel free to share this episode. Make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Till next time. Please be safe. Thanks for listening to the Project Purple Podcast. That's a wrap.